You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Welcome to this week's episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant, founder of The Wounded Blue, and author of A Cop's Life. A lot happening, a lot happening in the law enforcement community. Let's take a walk into the briefing room, and I'm going to give you my view from the blue. Well, I guess everything in the news today is about the COVID virus, and law enforcement is being affected on a myriad of ways. It's, it's becoming the most deadly year in law enforcement history because of the number of officers who are contracting it and dying from it. The, I think at this point, we are about at the number 70 for officers who have died from the COVID virus. That is approaching the single most deadly day in law enforcement history, which was uh, when the World Trade Center was attacked and we lost 72 officers. This is now becoming a, the, the most deadly situation for law enforcement that's ever existed. And uh, some, some interesting aspects to this are what is happening around the country as far as people rebelling against being told to be locked up in their houses for extended periods of time. Um, I mean, thousands descended on the Virginia Capitol to protest the stay-at-home order. Same thing in Michigan. Um, the, uh, it, this is happening around the country. There was a big protest in Las Vegas. Uh, cars lined up by the miles in a, um, in a show of uh, their contempt for the governor's closure of the entire economy. Um, and, and even the Department of Justice is now challenging states with stay-at-home orders, uh, disturbing, this is, what, this is what the DOJ says, disturbingly close to house arrest. I've never seen anything like this. I don't think this has ever happened in our country before, where state governments, local governments, are basically interfering with the constitutional rights of their citizens on a wholesale basis. Now, of course, everyone understands that, that you know, this is uncharted territory. What, how does law enforcement react to this? Unfortunately, the cops are right in the middle. Um, they're being told to enforce what may wind up to be illegal laws or, or edicts from political figures. And it, it, this is being done on an ad hoc basis there's no, there's no one blanket type of, um, of uh, edict or whatever you want to call it, law. It's every jurisdiction is different. Every state is different. And people are rebelling. And, and this is making it more and more difficult for law enforcement because there are, there are departments who are, who are telling their officers, don't, do not enforce these laws because you're going to be the one holding the leaky bag when it turns out that these are these are illegal um orders so anyway this is this is happening all over the country 
This is really, really a situation that is unprecedented, exceedingly dangerous for law enforcement, not just from the physical danger, which is, you know, increasingly high, both from, you know, people who become violent after they're told what, you know, uh, to stay home for extended periods of time, not let their children play with other children. I've seen some videos that just are chilling to me of, of the way law enforcement officers in some jurisdictions are, are uh, using their power. This is, this, is, uh, this is something that needs to be watched. And when I see that the DOJ is, is looking at the way some states are issuing their orders, I certainly can understand it. And, um, and, and I've, I've got a lot of concerns about this. But also, life is going on in, in the law enforcement world as well. And there's, there's one topic I want to bring up that is, is uh, something that is disturbing about the leadership. You know, I often talk about law enforcement leadership on this show. And this, what's happening in Little Rock, Arkansas is making my head spin. Um, there was a officer-involved shooting. An officer named Charles Starks um, shot and killed a, a suspect who was trying to run him over. And it was all captured on dash cam, video cam. Um, the uh, department lost their mind when they saw the video. But the district attorney ruled that this was a justifiable shooting. And the chief, um, well, he fired him. He fired him, and then the, the, the officer sued the department. And he got his job back. And the chief is refusing to honor what the judge told him. And then, to make matters worse, because people in the upper level of the administration told the chief and went against him in court and testified against him because he, he did not follow proper procedure and, and basically had a personal vendetta and professional vendetta against this officer, they testified as they should have in favor of the officer and said it was, the investigation was, was shoddy as it was. It was rushed because there was political ramifications, white officer shooting black suspect. And the, the chief um, did a political expediency thing and fired the officer for no reason. So now internal attention has been boiling to the surface um, for, for more than a year following the shooting. And now the uh, agency's two top officials are headed to court because the assistant chief filed a lawsuit against the chief accusing him of retaliating against him for testifying in the investigation. Uh, so this is, this is some serious stuff here. Um, this chief's out of control. The, the fact that he is refusing to comply with the court's order, the fact that he, is, he rushed to judgment and, and basically um, fired this officer when the, when the shooting was justifiable, it has all the earmarks of, of horrendous police leadership. So this is something to watch. I can't imagine the morale in that department, uh, knowing that the chief will fire them, even though they're justified in using force. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the, in the, uh, in the lawsuit, assistant chief against chief.
and we really don't have a lot more time today because of um, of of all the things that are that are taking place in the the um, um, person who's in our interview room waiting for us is an amazing got an amazing story and I want to get to him so thanks for uh, joining me and uh, let's take a walk into the interview room I want to talk to you about CBD cannabis products that are used for therapeutic purposes now um, I didn't really understand about this product uh, there are so many of them on the market, and I, I never really paid attention to it because I was always afraid of actually using it because, you know, as a cop for as many years as I was, just the thought of using a cannabis product made me really nervous. You know, I expected, okay, so am I, I going to get high from this? Well, there is a product out there called Luxvite, L-U-X-V-I-T-E, and it is all kinds of different forms of CBD. And I was very hesitant to try it, but a um, retired law enforcement officer from the NYPD uh, began a company that uh, distributes this product. And he came to me and he explained to me that he had done a lot of research and found a THC-free product that um, that was that was amazing. So I got I got to say that I figured, well, what the hell? Let me let me try some of these things, and. Um, all I'm going to say is that I, I utilized some of these products, and I was amazed at the results that I got, literally amazed. And so now um, I'm kind of a proponent. I had heard from people that I worked with that, that some of these CD products were, were damn good. And uh, Luxvite uh, is, a, is a product that, that has been um, thoroughly tested. It is, uh, as I said, THC-free. You can actually go online and look at the um, the purity of the product, and so it's really it's really amazing stuff. So, Luxvite is um, is the brand, and it's luxvitecbd.com. That's L-U-X-V-I-T-E-C-B-D.com. Now, um, because th this uh, provider is former law enforcement, uh, retired law enforcement, I should say. He is offering uh, my listeners a, a discount on this product. And so if you put in the code um, uh, Blue Lives, uh, you can get this product at a discounted rate as well. So this is, this is pretty amazing stuff. Go to LuxviteCBD.com. Check it out and put in the code Blue Lives. And, uh, and get a discount at the same time. Give it a try. LuxFightCBD.com. If you love coffee as much as I love coffee, in fact, even if you don't love it as much as I do, but you like it, Law Dog Coffee Company is the newest and the greatest coffee company to come along in a long time. Now, all right, I admit... I'm a little prejudiced because Law Dog Coffee is a major sponsor of the Wounded Blue. They actually donate 15% of their revenue to the Wounded Blue. And they are uh, a partner of, of the Wounded Blue in a lot of different ways. So, this coffee company is, uh, is law enforcement uh, based. 
it supports law enforcement, but most importantly, the coffee is amazing. I I love it. I mean, it's uh, it's rich. It's uh, uh, organically grown. It's ethically grown in uh, in Costa Rica. It is uh, um, roasted by a family roasting company. It's been in business for ninety years. Uh, it's rich. It is delicious, and it gets delivered directly to your door. It's uh, subscription based. You can have one pound, two pound, twenty pounds, however much you want, delivered right to your door, and uh, and get a taste of this amazing coffee. So go to LawDogCoffee.com. It was one word, LawDogCoffee.com. And and also, by the way, they got some amazing gear, uh, t-shirts and mugs and hats and all kinds of stuff. Uh, really cool designs. So check it out, LawDogCoffee.com. Tastes so good. It ought to be illegal. There's something very important I want you to do for me. If you've been listening to the Voice of American Law Enforcement for any time, you know that we are very dedicated to the law enforcement community here. I would like you to go to a website. It's www.thewoundedblue.org. I want you to read about how we at this organization are aiding injured and disabled law enforcement officers. If you are a law enforcement officer and you have been injured or disabled and you feel forgotten and alone, this is why we exist. We have a fully trained peer support team, all made of police officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up, and screwed up. They know what you're going through, and we exist for you. You are the part of the Blue family, and you deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. Unfortunately, many police agencies and cities do not treat their officers with respect and dignity when they are injured, either physically or emotionally. So go to thewoundedblue.org. If you are a citizen and you want to help, please check out how you can join the Wounded Blue. And if you're a police officer or have been, exist for you. So check out thewoundedblue.org. Now, I would also urge you to see our film. It is on Amazon, it is on iTunes, it's the Microsoft Store, it's pretty much every platform you can imagine. It's called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. You would be shocked at how the men and women of this, you know, the law enforcement community in this country, many are being treated with such disrespect. Many people, most people, even cops, believe that if you are severely injured in the line of duty, you're going to be taken care of financially and emotionally. In many cases, that is not true. Please watch the film and help the Wounded Blue. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcast, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of The Voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L, dot com slash sleep. With me today in the interview room of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, is a COVID virus survivor, a law enforcement COVID virus survivor. Uh, he has a very unique perspective about the, uh, about the issues facing law enforcement and America today. Now, let me give you a little bit of background information. Matt Wilton is our guest today. Matt um, is a retired fire department lieutenant. He is also a, uh, a paramedic instructor. He is a practicing emergency medicine uh, PA. And he has also, for seven years, been a reserve deputy with the Van, Van Buren County, Michigan Sheriff's Department. And so he has literally done a life of service. Matt, thanks so much for coming on to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Well, good afternoon, Randy, and uh, thank you for uh, having me on your show. It's uh, truly a privilege. Well, you know, it, it's, uh, I really want to thank you for reaching out to me and, and letting me know your perspective. My, uh, my uh, listeners here, uh, you know, they, everybody in America has been getting different perspectives and, and news and information about the COVID virus, and it's scaring the hell out of everybody. Um, you, you got it, and you beat it. So I, I would love to hear, you know, your your thoughts on on this. Uh, uh, first of all, your personal experience, and um, and then we'll we'll talk about the the entire law enforcement perspective. Yeah, and <clears throat> Randy, you know, it, you know, I keep hearing it described uh, on the news as, as a scary time, and and, and I think that, um, you know, it it, it can be uh, certainly alarming. I, I think sometimes scary is a little bit um, uh, too extreme for this because you know it is a virus; it's out there, um, but the vast majority of people are are certainly surviving from it, uh, and, and and that's the good news. And I think that a lot of times that's what we need to focus on. Um, cases seem to be um, incredibly severe at, at higher rates. But in my case, I was very fortunate. Um, I did have a bad case of it, uh, but it took about 14 days to really start seeing the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, when you say, yeah, I mean, you're in Michigan where, where there's been a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, governmental, um, <laughs> uh, what's the word I'm looking for where I don't have to insult your governor, but a, a, lot, of, a lot of management shall we say, of, of uh, people's movement and, and, uh, and freedoms, basically. 
And, you know, first of all, let's talk about, I mean, you've got a huge background in, in medicine. You're a PA, you're, you've got, done emergency medicine for years, uh, and you have, you know, you're an active duty law enforcement officer. So how did, first of all, how did you, how do you think you contracted the virus and what were the symptoms that you felt? You know, I, I think that, uh, well, it, it probably, it's most likely that it came from uh, my, my emergency medicine practice in, in one of the three departments. Um, I can't dial it down to one specific department because you can experience the onset of symptoms anywhere from two and a half to 14 days after exposure. Uh, kind of the average is right around 5.2 days. So it was probably something that, you know, I had done in the department and became exposed. Um, now, with that said, we've been taking really extreme uh, measures to protect ourselves. We wear surgical caps, we wear face masks, we wear or N95 masks, safety glasses, face shields, and when we go into a suspected COVID patient's room, we're encapsulated in um, uh, PPE. And with that, you know, we strip down and kind of move out back into the main environment once our patient care is done. And we even took it a step further and we're showering in our call room and changing into street clothes before we even leave the department. So it may have been something as simple as touching a doorknob or um, maybe, you know, taking my mask off to take a drink or th there's just any number of ways that I could have gotten this. Uh, but clearly with the number of patients and the density as far as being in the department, um, you know, my, uh, that's likely where it came from. And my employer actually considered it an on-the-job um, injury. You know, okay. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, because this is, this is a really important topic, uh, in, in the law enforcement community. The, as you said, you know, you don't know when you got it and it's almost impossible to isolate it to one particular time period. So, you know, law enforcement officers are, are dying from this. I mean, we, I think we've lost more than 50 so far this year. Um, thousands more are, are infected by it. And de de depending on the state that you're in, will determine whether or not you're going to be um, taken care of by workers' compensation, or if you're going to have to cover the, 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 you know, the deductible and the cost from your private insurance. So this is a, this is a huge issue. Your, your uh, sheriff, um, a judge this to be a line of duty injury, correct? No, it was actually my medical practice. Uh, Your medical practice, okay. Is a, is a line of duty injury. Um, I'm not uh, specifically certain at, at this point how they would manage that, although that would be my assumption. So so what what were the symptoms? I mean, how did you begin to realize that you, that you were uh, affected by this? You know, it was pretty interesting because it was rather insidious. Um, I would work a uh, 3 to 11 shift on a Thursday night. I was lined up for a great four-day weekend off, which is a pretty rare thing in our practice. And I felt fine. I, I came home and I, I had showered already and I, I had gone to bed and felt great. Got up in the morning, had my, my coffee and started my day as I normally would. And, and later that evening, I developed a bit of a dry cough, which would not be unusual for me in April in Michigan, just because of the pollens that are coming out. I, I've got seasonal allergies and it didn't really bother me. So I had uh, completed my day, went to bed, got up on Saturday and I noticed that I just didn't feel well. I had some muscle aches and I had a lot of joint pains in my pelvis and my shoulders. And throughout the course of the day, those continued to worsen. And um, 
I had gone to bed and then Sunday morning I woke up and my wife told me, you know, you're burning up. And she took my temperature and it was 103 degrees. And that 103 degree temperature is where I lived for 14 consecutive days. Wow. So you, you were, you had this, this very, very high temperature, um, body aches. I mean, you were, I mean, did you feel at, at any point that, that your life was threatened? You know, um, I knew right away um, that I was 90% certain that I had actually contracted the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is COVID-19. And I contacted my um, medical practice, corporate, uh, corporate or system medical director. And, and within 45 minutes, Scott had me in to get uh, tested. And that was off. And, you know, I, I really didn't feel concerned or scared until I got the positive result. And within you know, I, I got the positive result from the healthcare system, and within ten minutes, my internist was calling to check up on me and make sure things were good. And for about for about five minutes, I was a little concerned and, and I was worried. And I finally thought, wait a second, you know, I can't fix this, and it is what it is. But it, it you know, it's certainly a little concerning for that five minutes because you just never know where this is going to go. I did have a cough, but it wasn't bad. I wasn't short of breath. But I look at my law enforcement colleagues in the city of Detroit the Wayne County Sheriff's Office, which encompasses the city of Detroit or surrounds it. And there were guys there that were dying that were my age. And my suspicion was I had a higher viral load just by virtue of my emergency medicine practice. In other words, I was coming into contact with this virus at probably a higher rate than they were. So, you know, it it, it gives you a a little pause there for a second. Uh, But, you know, on the flip side, and and I know this has been uh, mentioned in previous uh, podcasts that you've had, you know, spirituality is a big part of my life, and uh, I think prayer kind of helped me get through that. Oh, I'm 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 happy to hear that you were comforted by that. Um, but I mean, the fear factor of of knowing that you're infected with you know um, a potentially fatal disease had to had to really have some you know some uh, effects on your on your emotional on your emotional well-being. You know, I, I, at the time, like I said, I was concerned for literally about five minutes and then it just kind of went away. I, I was really more concerned about infecting my wife, who's an emergency nurse. Um, that, you know, that was my concern. I was worried that, you know, um, we, iso- we self-isolated uh, very early in this whole process without having a legal order to do so um, because we're both healthcare workers and we backed off from our our daughters and, and our sons-in-laws and our, and our grandkids because we didn't want to put them at risk. And, you know, that was really more of my concern was my wife and, and my, my, my extended family. I was, you know, and hoping that they hadn't been exposed by me or, or anyone else to this uh, disease. What did, did your wife wind up contracting it? She did. And um, it was interesting because she lagged about three or four days behind me. And fortunately she kind of had uh, uh, much less severe symptoms where I had just this overwhelming fatigue and these body aches and pains and, and the high fever. She just had a, some fatigue and uh, a cough and she had a fever for one day. It was 101. She took Tylenol, went away and it didn't really come back. So we were really fortunate, but you know, the, the funny thing is, is we both discovered that we were concerned for one another, not that we wouldn't have been, but if we had gotten up in the middle of the night to, to get some water to drink or something to drink, we were each stopping you know, at the other person's bedroom to make sure that they were still breathing, which, you know, that's kind of where our minds were. We were more concerned about our spouse than we were ourselves. And, you know, the moment I developed the fever, my wife said, well, you know, 
stay here in the master bedroom. I'll go to another bedroom. And so we both split. And, um, but yeah, so she, she did contract it. She had it for about the same amount of time. Um, but you know, the interesting thing about this whole thing is the fatigue is incredibly profound. We were sleeping 20 plus hours a day. Wow. And, and that's very unusual for us because we're people that, you know, we get up early, we go to work, you know, we're out doing our thing. We're energetic and just the mere, um, effort of taking a shower and getting dressed for the day would literally put us back into bed for four or five hours because it just wiped us out that much. You know, you don't really hear so much about, you know, the personal aspects of, uh, of, of contracting this. So both of you got it. And, uh, did anyone else in your family contract it? No. And you know, it, it's been a little concerning because, um, I have a son-in-law, uh, that's in law enforcement and he's a troop is a uh, father's public safety officer. And, um, I, I got a text that my son-in-law developed a fever and he has to call in every morning and answer questions. And they said, you know, don't come to work. Here's where you go to get tested. Uh, thankfully his test was negative. Um, but so far, um, we've been fortunate. I have a son-in-law that's an airline pilot, so he's at high risk. I have a daughter that's in nursing school and she's an ER tech at a children's hospital here in Michigan, and she's being exposed on a daily basis. So thus far, we've, we've not had any other, other cases. How has your, your, now your, let's talk about your law enforcement, um, your law enforcement career. You have, I mean, you're, you've been in, in the medical service for years, retired from the fire department. What made you go into police work as well? Well, it's interesting. I'd retired from the fire service and I actually had uh, my fire and EMS career were completely, they were in a separate county from where I live. And I had kids in school, um, high school and junior high at the time. I was kind of getting the itch to go back out and, and do something for my community. And uh, somebody had mentioned, you know, being a, a joining the sheriff's office as a reserve deputy. And, you know, I, I kind of thought about it for a while and I hemmed and I hawed because, you know, I've always joked that uh, I've been a, you know, a drug pusher and a hose puller, and, <laughs> you know, throughout the course of my, my career. And I was never, you know, real big, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of thoughts about law enforcement, but at some point I got convinced and uh, I went into that because I, you know, I thought, you know, this is something I can do not just to support my community, but also to support, you know, my brothers and sisters in blue and brown. Uh, it was a good thing. I think it was the right thing to do for my community and for law enforcement as a whole to support that. So I, I joined the sheriff's office about seven years ago, and it's it's been an incredible experience. You know, I, there are many people in America that are unaware that reserve police officers actually exist and that they actually go out and do hands-on police work for either no money or a very small hourly rate. Um, you know, you're basically taking the same risks. I mean, you're out on patrol, you're doing p police work and, and you're doing this out of a sense of duty to your community. That's a, that's uh, shows an amazing amount of, um, of commitment. And how, how does, how does that work as far as in your department, you, you, you work for a, a, a sheriff's department. How many, how many um, officers are, are on this department? We have uh, a total of uh, just over 200 full-time employees, and of that, we have 57 sworn deputies. 
Um, so between the 57 sworn deputies, we have, you know, 17 guys on the SWAT team and it's, it's multi-jurisdictional. There's a city police department in the Pokagon tribe, uh, that participates and, you know, we've got three canine handlers and, um, so, you know, all total, including the reserve division, the mounted division, uh, the victim services unit, um, we're just over 200 people. Um, we've got about seven, uh, support staff in the admin office as well. So, that, I mean, it's a substantial department. Um, how many reserve officers are there? Reserve we, have, deputies? Uh, we have 30 slots, and at this point, we're at 25 reserve officers. And, and to kind of give that some uh, reference point, we have 28 road patrol officers in our uniformed services division. So, I mean, you, the reserves make up a significant amount of, of manpower for the department. How many, how many hours do you usually devote to that? Per, uh, per, per month? You know, it, it varies uh, based on my clinical schedule on uh, the emergency department. You know, there are some, like recently, because we've all pulled away, we, in our reserves, we have other primary jobs. So the sheriff said, hey, let's pull you guys back to avoid any possible infection of, of the full-time guys. But so this month I've got just a few hours involved. And then some months I can work up to 60 hours uh, a month. Uh, it's just depending on, you know, what assignments are available, what the need is. And then, you know, at this point, you know, where we're going to go as far as the COVID-19 thing. So on average, our division devotes about 6,500 or 7,000 hours a year to the sheriff's office. That's a, that's a, that's a, a lot, that's a lot of, a lot of free patrol work. That's what I can say. Uh, have any of the, any of the, the members of the department contracted the disease? At, at this point, I am not aware of anybody in our agency that has uh, contracted it. I, I do have a, a physician colleague uh, in my practice that uh, came down with it and tested positive here just last week. Um, so, but I'm not aware of anybody in our department at this point that has it. Um, interestingly, uh, our departments locally, and I, I hope everybody is doing this, we have a, a daily set of uh, triage questions that all the deputies and, and police officers have to answer before they can even check in and go to work. Oh, really? And what are those questions? Yeah, we're screening people regarding, um, you know, signs and symptoms of fever, uh, cough, shortness of breath, muscle aches, joint pains. Um, and, you know, before, you know, if you answer yes to one of those, you're going to get a phone call or, you know, we're going to put you be pulled aside and that'll be, you know, uh, kind of further investigated and, and likely tested, which uh, in, in public safety, I'm a huge fan of uh, testing if there's the slightest symptom. Oh, you've got, I mean, besides everything else that you do, you've also got a master's of, uh, uh, of medicine. And um, so you, you're, you're not the layman when it comes down to the, the knowledge of, of this, uh, of this uh, you know, disease. Um, given all of the information, misinformation that's out there, you know what would you what would you say to the law enforcement community about about the fears that um, that surround this? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that everyone has to have a healthy respect uh, for the potential that this virus can cause. I struggle. Uh, I've, I've spoken with some of my law enforcement colleagues that are like, you know, I get it. Wash my hands, wear a mask, take a shower, change my uniform. Uh, and then I, you know, I hear from other folks outside of my department that are very concerned about this. So like, I know I'm going to get it. I'm going to infect my wife and kids. 
And, and I think that we need to like step back from what we're seeing in the news media where it's just being reported as death after death after death and look at it from the number of people that are actually recovering. Um, again, I, I think it's just absolutely necessary to have a healthy respect for the potential. But at the same time, I think we have to have a realistic awareness of um, the number of people that are surviving from it. Um, there are a number of ways that you can certainly decrease the risks uh, regarding this as you're going into work on a daily basis. Did uh, the the question that that I have is America is America being frightened out of its wits unnecessarily? I mean, you know, your personal perspective, you were infected by this. Your wife was infected by this, and you survived it, and you're 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 back. You're hundred percent. So you know, is are 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 we being scared for nothing? I don't know that we're being scared for nothing. I, I, I think in a lot of cases it's being overstated. I, I think it's important to self-isolate. I, I think it's important to follow the guidelines. I sometimes wonder if what's occurring isn't being sensationalized. Yeah, okay. I think that, I, I, you know, the, one of the, the issues that I have is I, I, I'm talking from a law enforcement perspective and, you know, cops around the country are being forced into a role that they've never been, they've never been in before. And that is instead of being law enforcement, uh, you know, by statute, they're now having to enforce laws by edict and by state by state, by governors, uh, mayors, um, whims. How does how do you think that this is is playing out around you know it, around America? Because I see this as putting police officers in into uh, uh, situations that is that is damaging to the law enforcement role. I absolutely agree with that. And in fact, I was reading the paper this morning where Ammon Bundy was actually protesting at uh, an Idaho police officer's residence because he had to arrest a woman on misdemeanor charges for violating uh, the isolation or social distancing uh, edict, I guess that used the term you used. And it, it's unfortunate because I think law enforcement already has a tough enough job. I think that um, there are social forces at work that, that drive uh, a negative opinion and view of, of law enforcement in general. And that's not necessarily what law enforcement signed up for. Um, I know in my department, my sheriff has been very clear that, you know, if you're picked up on an OWI, you're going to buy a charge of violating the executive order. But outside of that, we're not primarily enforcing that. Um, if we get complaints um, that people are violating, we often uh, refer those to the state police uh, for management. But it's just really difficult to watch some of the video and read some of these articles about the position that law enforcement has been placed in. And I think that's probably the scariest part of this whole thing is, you know, what are the uh, results going to be as far as um, the view or the image that's projected by law enforcement? I, you know, there have been some, a couple of really disturbing videos that I've seen as well. And, and, you know, to see, to see police officers, um, you know, go after a, a lone kayaker 
<laughs> or, or someone who's walking along the beach by themselves and then are, ba- are, are detained or arrested, uh, I, I can't help but think that this is going to, this is going to have a, a negative impact on the law enforcement community as a whole. So not only do we have to worry about the edicts and the, and the, the whims of, of politicians ordering officers to do things which are, I believe, onerous, but also, you know, you have the judgment calls by the officers themselves who are, who, you know, are, are, are enforcing some of these, um, these very restrictive um, edicts. And, and I, I can't help but believe that God help the first officer who winds up in a use of deadly force situation based on a confrontation over uh, social distancing. Because I have no idea that what, how that could touch off uh, you know, a great deal of, of civil unrest for Americans. And, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. I had a conversation yesterday with one of my uh, medical colleagues just regarding that very issue. And, you know, I I said, I I don't know where that could possibly go. Um, I've um, had a couple of uh, hands-on use of force uh, situations. And, um, you know, you stop and think, you know, you know, you did the right thing, but how is this going to be perceived? And I don't know what's going to happen as far as criminal charges against police officers that use deadly force in these circumstances, because these are executive orders or laws that have been promulgated from the legislature or from the governor's office in whichever state you want to choose. But at what point will the politicians want to take responsibility for that law if somebody does end up being unfortunately killed? Can you, uh, can you say never? Cause that's exact. I know who's, I mean, I, listen, I've seen politicians throw cops under the bus for the, you know, in the most justified of circumstances. You can imagine how they will step aside and watch a, a cop burn to the ground, based on uh, based on you know the, this 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 these social issues that are now arising. So I think it's it's something that is not being well thought out, um, and 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 once again the police are being pushed into the front lines, and uh, you know even though that's that's the job. There need to be safeguards put in place which protect these officers, including a presumption that any law enforcement officer who contracts this virus needs to be a presumption that it is an on-duty injury. And that is not the case in many, many states. So you're seeing officers not only contracting the disease, but then paying a financial toll for it because it comes out of their own pockets. So this is another issue that's, that has not been addressed on a national basis, except that the Department of Justice did something which I think really shows the, um, this administration's caring about law enforcement. And that is if a law enforcement officer dies from coronavirus, it is automatically a presumption that it is a line of duty injury. And thus the Department of Justice will give that public safety officer benefit to the family and the survivors. So that's, that's one thing, but you're still, you know, the, the majority of the cases are like yours where people survive it, but you know, there's, there's costs involved. You, you didn't wind up in the hospital. You went, you stayed at home. Was that a personal decision of yours? 
No, um, the my my practice is uh, seventy five providers, um, and it's an academic emergency medicine practice. We have residents and uh, that we teach, and it's a fairly large independent practice for our state. Uh, my my corporate president who I still practice with and work with and our corporate medical director that oversees all the departments would call me on a daily basis. And they, they made me absolutely promise that if I had the slightest shortness of breath, I would go to the hospital because we're all pretty fundamentally stoic people. Um, you know, if we get a, a cough or a runny nose or a sore throat, we still go to work. You know, we, we put a mask on, we protect the patients. Um, but I did not have to go to the hospital and, you know, I understood the reality of it um, in, in terms of, you know, what, what would be offered at the hospital. I mean, there was nothing that they were going to do for me that I could not do at home. Well, I think, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but I'm more afraid of going to the hospital <laughs> than, I am, than I am of anything else. Well, you know, <laughs> interestingly, we've seen about a 50% reduction in our volume. And, and our group sees roughly 200,000 patients a year. And we've also seen uh, a subsequent reduction in, in law enforcement volumes, at least in my county. And I think it's true probably in, in my surrounding counties where things are way off. Now, we have seen a spike in assaults and uh, domestic violence, but uh, we are we, probably on across the board is, is significantly down. Last month, by the township I live in, we were down more than 70% on 911 requests across the board with police, fire, and EMS. That's really interesting. I think this is what's happening across the country. We're hearing the exactly the same, you know, and, and, you know, I wonder if, I wonder if this is going to fundamentally change um, the law enforcement perspective. Uh, you know, it, it shows that, you know, we can do it. That's a, that the community can actually reduce crime. I wonder after this is over, <laughs> You know, it's a, it's an interesting social question, though. It is, but I don't think I'd put any money on it at this point. <laughs> I'm going to be with you. I'm right. I'm right with you on that. Well, we we've pretty much run out of time, Matt. Uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Your perspective as a survivor of the COVID virus in your unique positions as both a law enforcement officer. And a uh, and a trained um, uh, M, uh, PA and emergency med- medicine specialist really provides a very unique perspective. So I want to once again I want to thank you for coming on to the show and uh, and and giving us your perspective. Well, Randy, thanks so much for your time. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure. And again, if I can be of uh, any assistance to you as regarding resources about COVID nineteen or. Uh, that kind of medical law enforcement interface, please don't ever hesitate to, uh, to call. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. Okay, I got some big news for you guys. With an invite, that's right, I'm going to invite you to a party. Well, it's much more than a party. It's a celebration. It's a celebration of law enforcement unity and pride. This is going to be the biggest celebration for law enforcement officers and those who support them in America. And it's being put on by the Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. And if you haven't figured it out, I happen to be the CEO and founder of that organization. But we're going to have an event like no other. It's going to be held in Las Vegas October 17th of this year. By that time, I'm sure all this COVID insanity will be gone. And we are going to have a much 
needed celebration. So um, it's going to be dinner. It's going to be cocktail. It's going to be entertainment. It's going to be uh, an incredible silent auction and live auction. Uh, but it's going to be a whole lot more. There are going to be some huge, fun surprises. But it's also going to be a celebration of the men and women of the law enforcement community. They have a right to be proud, and the unity that they share is something that uh, that needs to be celebrated. So you're invited, and it's not even expensive, okay? It's $90 per person, and you get dinner, you get drink, you get all that other entertainment, and uh, it's going to be in Vegas October 17th. There's going to be discounted hotel rooms, um, I think for about $99 a room, at the um, at, at a hotel which is going to be near the venue, it's going to be held at the Cox Pavilion. So um, I want you to go to Facebook right now. Go to the Brothers in Blue Bash. You can get tickets there. You can also buy a table for only eight hundred fifty dollars. It's a table for ten. So bring your buddies, bring your spouses, your girlfriends, both if you know if, if you can get away with it, and and come out to this event. Um, Brothers in Blue Bash, Las Vegas. It's on Facebook. We have our own Facebook page. And also looking for people who want to sponsor this. If you're a business that wants to have its name out there in front of thousands of American law enforcement officers and their families showing that you support them, you want to contact me at randy at thewoundedblue.org. It's randy at thewoundedblue.org. The Brothers in Blue Bash, October 17th. And you want to be here for that. See you then. End of Watch with Randy Sutton. Each week here on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, we pay our respects to the men and women of the profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice, given their lives in the line of duty. This has been a deadly year for the American law enforcement officer, both from the violence which continues to escalate and now from the COVID virus. I have several names to read this week. The first is Police Officer Dan Walters, the San Diego Police Department. Police Officer Dan Walters succumbed to complications of a gunshot wound sustained on November 12, 2003. He and his partner were backing up another officer on 43rd Street near Gamma Street after the officer stopped to investigate a vehicle parked in the travel lanes with a subject standing nearby. The man immediately pointed a gun at the officer, causing him to seek cover. Officer Walters and his partner immediately confronted the man who attacked Officer Walters. The man placed his 357 uh, Magnum handgun against Officer Walters' neck and shot him, causing him to fall into the roadway. The man was then shot and killed by Officer Wal- Walters' partner. A passing vehicle inadvertently struck Officer Walters, causing additional injuries. He was transported to a local hospital where it was determined that he had become paralyzed from the neck down. It was later determined the man who shot Officer Walters was involved in a violent domestic incident when the first officer encountered him. Officer Walters remained paralyzed and died from complications from the original injuries on April 23, 2020. Officer Walters had served with the San Diego police for five years at the time that he was shot. Police Officer Dan Walters, San Diego Police Department, California. End of watch Thursday, April 23rd, 2020. 
Deputy Sheriff John Andrew Roden of the Bell County Sheriff's Office in Texas. Deputy Sheriff John Roden was struck and killed by a vehicle while attempting to deploy spike strips during a vehicle pursuit of a stolen car. The pursuit had started in Williamson County and proceeded into Bell County along I-35 at about 1.40 a.m. Deputy Roden was preparing to deploy the spike strips near the exit 94 when he was struck by a tractor trailer. Deputy Roden served with the Bell County Sheriff's Office for 10 years. Deputy Sheriff John Andrew Roden, Bell County Sheriff's Office, Texas, end of watch Sunday, April 26, 2020. Glenn Dale Hudo Jr. of the Baton Rouge Police Department. Lieutenant Glenn Hudo was shot and killed as he and other officers attempted to locate a murder suspect at a home on the 3150 block of Conrad Drive at about 12.30 p.m. The subject had been involved in a domestic violence-related homicide at a home six miles away three hours earlier. Officers received a tip that the suspect was hiding in a home on Conrad Drive. Lieutenant Hudo and other officers responded to the home to contact the subject. As Lieutenant Hudo and a second officer positioned themselves in the backyard prior to making contact, the man opened fire on them with a semi-automatic rifle, striking both officers. The man then shot Lieutenant Hudo several more times at close range as he lay on the ground. Lieutenant Hudo succumbed to his wounds at the scene. The second officer was gravely wounded and transported to a local hospital. The man retreated into the home where he remained barricaded for four hours before surrendering. He was charged with capital murder. He had previously made statements to a relative that he would ambush Baton Rouge officers in an attempt to mimic the subject who ambushed and murdered Corporal Montrell Jackson, Officer Matthew Gerald, and Deputy Sheriff Garfola on July 17, 2016. Lieutenant Hudo had served with the Baton Rouge Police for 21 years and served in law enforcement for 24. Lieutenant Glenn Dale Hudo, Jr. of the Baton Rouge Police Department. End of watch, April 26, 2020. The next is Police Officer Ronald Newman with the Chicago Police Department. Police Officer Ronald Newman died as a result of contracting COVID-19 while on duty. Officer Newman had served with the Chicago Police for 19 years was assigned to the 4th District. He is survived by his wife and two children. In early 2020, thousands of law enforcement officers and other first responders throughout the country contracted COVID-19 during the worldwide pandemic due to requirements of their job. Many of these first responders died as a result of COVID. Police Officer Ronald Newman, Chicago Police, end of watch Friday, April 17, 2020. Corporal Lawrence Onley of the United States Department of Defense Naval District, Washington Police Department. Corporal Lawrence Onley died after having confirmed exposure to a COVID-19 patient while on duty. Corporal Onley had served with the Naval District, Washington Police for 23 years was assigned to the Naval Research Lab. He is survived by his daughter and fiance. Corporal Lawrence Onley, United States Department of Defense, Naval District, Washington Police Department, U.S. Government. End of watch, Tuesday, April 21st, 2020. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, serving the people that they protected. May they rest in peace. I'm very proud to announce a major accomplishment. Um, it is our television series, The Voices of the Blue. 
Voices of the Blue is a YouTube television series. It has six episodes. Uh, it is, it is uh, written and directed by Mr. Jason Harney, a retired sergeant from Metro Police Las Vegas, who is a, an award-winning filmmaker. He was the uh, director and writer of our documentary film called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. And now we have our own television series. It is a it is a powerful, powerful series. It 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 features stories by law enforcement officers uh, and experts in the field of post traumatic stress. Um, many of these officers have been seriously injured in the line of duty, uh, and and talk very powerfully about their experiences. Um, this is some this is a must see for law enforcement and their families, but also. If, if you are just simply a supporter of law enforcement and want to know more about what they face, you don't want to miss this series. It's free. All you got to do is go to YouTube and subscribe to Wounded Blue TV. That's Wounded Blue TV on YouTube. It is going to air, the first episode is going to air um, on Friday, May 1st. And then uh, another uh, part of the series will drop every two weeks. So... Go to YouTube, put in Wounded Blue TV, subscribe, and watch this series. You won't be sorry. Trust me on this one. And I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. We try to bring you interesting guests, interesting perspectives on the law enforcement uh, uh, community here. And, um, and we do our best to entertain you as well. So thanks again for joining me, and I'll see you next week here on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement on the America Out Loud Network.